This summer for the podcast, I'm going to be doing something called A Little Help from My Friends, where I take sermons preached by friends of mine that I think are pretty good uh, and and sharing them with you guys. So uh, this one is by a friend of mine named Matt Trexler. He's the RUF campus minister at uh, UCLA out in California, and it's a sermon on singleness, and I think it's the best sermon I've ever heard on singleness. I hope you enjoy it. Our scripture for today's teaching comes from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried and the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is God's word. Good morning, Pacific Crossroads. How are you? You look good. Got that going for you. I have to be honest, I was a bit nervous about preaching on the topic of singleness. It is my story, and I have sometimes a hard time squaring what the Apostle Paul is saying with my own experience. And some of us may hear that passage, and we may just like dismiss it outright, right? You know, that's just weird. Singleness, preferable to marriage. It's like, Paul, we loved Romans Thought your eighth chapter was great, or like we can't be separated from the love of God. Not sure this one's your best, right? It's just a little, little weird. But I actually think the apostle may be onto something that is desperately needed for our church in our city. 
And it's going to require some wisdom to wade through it. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I need your spirit. This microphone helps people to hear my voice. It does not help people to hear your voice. My goal is not to elevate singleness and shame the married, nor is it to elevate marriage and shame the singled. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you will actually show us the full expression of the place to which we have been called, that we may glorify Jesus. I pray that you will show us the beauty of Jesus in whatever calling we are in right now. And I pray that we leave today loving you more and seeing you, Jesus, more clearly. Please do that. Please give us your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite shows is uh, Stranger Things, right? Okay, yeah. I won't spoil it. If you haven't seen it, I'm not going to ruin season two, I promise. I actually want to go back to season one near the very beginning. If you haven't seen the show, it's about strange things, right? Like happening in Hawkins, Indiana in the 1980s. And there's this strange alien creature called the Demogorgon, right? Who's basically terrorizing this town. And I want to focus on one character, Barb. Okay? If you've seen the show, Barb. Oh, Barb. Barb is single. Barb, in this scene in particular, is sitting by the pool at night alone because her friend Nancy Wheeler just went inside the house with her boyfriend Steve Harrington. And they're doing their couple thing, right? Like making out and doing all that kind of stuff. And it cuts back to Barb just sitting there. And then out of the blue, she's attacked by the Demogorgon. Or whatever, I can't do the noise, right? But it like attacks her, basically. And then it, it cuts back to Steve and Nancy like making out. And then back to her as she's like kidnapped and dragged off. And I want to suggest that that's actually a great analogy for what it feels like to be single in the church. (laughs) Hashtag justice for Barb, okay? It can feel like you're on your own. It feels like something's wrong with you. It feels like you're missing out on the good life that your friends might be having. Emphasis on might be. And it feels like being attacked by a demogorgon if demogorgon equals loneliness, right? Okay, so... What the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage, I think, is that the single life is a gift to the church and to the kingdom. And it's even a gift to you. It's a rewarding and full life that can even be preferable to marriage in some instances. I know that's a bold and audacious claim, but I want to look at it in three ways from this passage. I want to look at the call to singleness, the gift of singleness, and the hope of singleness. Look at the call. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him into which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. One of my friends, or I should say acquaintances really, is Dr. Wes Hill. He's a New Testament scholar in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And he's also a celibate gay man who has determined that that is his calling right now in life to be single. And he receives all these texts and messages and emails and letters from people who are struggling with their calling to be single in their present state. And he shared this email one time, and I'd like to share it with you. And this is from a man who says, Wes, what I cannot imagine, what causes me to wince in terror, is the thought of being single in my 40s, 50s, 60s, and not having the support and joy to pursue it. Whatever the case, I am profoundly restless in my singleness. I feel like I'm suffocating under the burden of it. Call it weakness. But I just so desperately need to be needed. More needed than a friend who closes the distance with a phone call, a drive, or a flight. I need to be needed 
by a companion who's there when I return from work, there when I want to read a book out loud, when I go to bed, there when I wake up or cry or laugh, there when I'm sick. What I want is a partner who mutually shares our moments of being. That's from Virginia Woolf. Otherwise, I dread the thought of having those moments forever unwitnessed. Sure, God witnesses my moments of being. That's just not enough. I need the face of God in a watchful and loving human face. That's many people in our church. That's many people in our families. That is me. How do we answer that email, church? How do we answer that email? I'm going to suggest that the American church has not answered it very well. In fact, we've said, well, maybe the hope is get married. That's a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. We'll talk about that. It is not the only thing. It is not. And it is not even the only biblical category. And I think what this passage is saying is radical. And I actually want to wade through it a little bit. Because we have treated in the American church singleness like it's some waiting stage, right, for the next thing that you have to level up to, right? Like, let's join the flying solo single ministry, right? And like, we'll see if we can graduate to full Christianity one day, right? Get married, pop out some kids, then we're really living for Jesus. Or we think it's like this weird labyrinth that we have to like walk through, you know, where we have to like convince God and others that we're mature and like love him above everything so we can secretly get someone, you know, like a mate, right? Like play reverse psychology on an omniscient God, you know, doesn't work, right? That's just, oh, those are such terrible tips or opinions, right? That's not what scripture is saying. And to understand what it is, we need to look at what Paul is not saying. First of all, he's not saying that we just need to like psych ourselves up and pretend that singleness is not lonely or hard and just be really spiritual about it and like devote ourselves and pretend like everything's amazing. It reminds me of like the Michael Scott quote from The Office where he's like talking about his singleness and he's, he's like, I like it. You know, I like starting each day with a sense of possibility and optimistic because every day I get a little more desperate. And desperate situations yield the quickest results. <laughs> That's not what Paul is saying. Paul actually talks about the hardship of singleness all the time. The hardship of his life. The thorn in the flesh. Being shipwrecked. Right? Like danger in cities. Danger at sea. The anxiety that he has for the churches. He's not saying singleness is a casual walk in the park. Right? He knows that it's hard. He's also not saying that marriage is less. Do not hear him say that. He is not saying that sex is less spiritual. Marriage is a beautiful calling. Paul knows his Old Testament. He knows Genesis, where God created light and darkness, heaven and earth, sky and water, male and female. And the union of these things bring diversity and beauty and fruitfulness. And God said it's not good for the man to be alone. Right? It's not good for the man to be alone. And that command to be fruitful and multiply, to have sex, is the first command. And it weaves its way through Genesis, which is why we have all those genealogies. And it goes all the way through the Old Testament. For the Song of Solomon is an entire book dedicated to the beauty of sex and marriage. All the way even to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. When the prophet says, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Marriage, family, and sex are fundamental to God's desire to redeem and renew the cosmos. So why is he saying, I prefer singleness? Is he having like a case of spiritual amnesia? 
Is he forgetting that he wrote Ephesians where he basically says marriage is an embodied parable of Christ and the church? What's going on here? I think Paul thinks that something radical has happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for which the world is a different place. And the values of that world is being upended through the kingdom of Christ. And God is doing a new thing. Because in that culture, and just like in our culture, a man found his masculinity in finding a wife and fathering children. Which is why there's that old Jewish rabbinical saying that went like this. He who is 20 and not yet married spends all his days in sin. Okay, that's... Mm. Alright. Okay, there's some discipleship. Or for a woman... It was, you need to find a husband and bear children. Which is why there's so many laments in the Old Testament about women who are barren. What Paul is saying, and this is huge. What Paul is saying is that marriage is absolutely a signpost to Christ in the church. But it's not the only signpost. Singleness and celibacy is a beautiful vocation and calling for each person. Not as something that could one day happen. But as it is right now. It is a full life, not a temporary state. It is extremely honorable in and of itself. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. He's saying singleness is beautiful. Singleness is full. Singleness is deep. You are a full human being in Christ, and it points to Christ in the church. Your life as a single celibate person can point to the glory of Jesus just as much as a married family can. How is that possible? We need to look at the gift of singleness. He says in verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. See, there's different gifts. Different gifts. Some of us are like, well, so there's the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness. In my mind, there's one that's better, right? You know, it's kind of like on Christmas morning where it's your dad gives Timmy the new red mountain bike and you get an SAT prep workbook, you know? One is better than the other. And the dad's like, no, I gave you both gifts. That's going to come in handy one day. You know, no. Or if I have the gift of singleness, can God return it and get his money back? Does it come with a receipt? Nor is he saying that the gift of singleness is some high spiritual calling for only certain spiritual saints, like monks and nuns and devoted missionaries. He's saying if you're here this morning and you're not engaged or married, you actually have the gift of singleness. The gift of singleness. Meaning that your life right now in the state you're in is beautiful and good and God has things for you to do. Even if you're dating someone, according to the biblical category, you actually are still single. And it is a gift. But we don't really treat it like that in the church, do we? We can say, oh yes, you can live your single life for Jesus, that's great. But under the hood we're like, and maybe you should find someone special and pop out like five kids so that we can really help our church's aggressive growth strategy, right? It's like, come on, get with it. We don't feel like we're a full human being. Which is actually why I really liked the new Spider-Man Homecoming movie. How's that for a transition? I really like this because I actually I think Tom Holland plays one of the most relatable Peter Parkers that's been on the screen so far. And there's this scene where Peter Parker and Tony Stark, right, who's Iron Man, they're sitting in the car. And Tony Stark has kind of taken him along on this mission with the Avengers, and it's over. And now Peter Parker looks at him and says hey, when's my next mission? When can I join you guys again? And Tony's like, oh, we'll call you, kid. Don't call us, right? And then he kind of does wait by the phone for like days and weeks and months and texting, hey, when's my next mission? Am I an Avenger yet? Hey, when's my next mission? When's my next mission? And then finally, Tony Stark has to break it to him. like, kid, you're not a full Avenger yet. You're still just a kid. 
And I really do think that in the church we treat people like that. You're not really a full Christian yet. You're not really living fully on mission for God until you're like married and have kids. You haven't graduated to this level of spirituality yet. The Bible actually doesn't say that. You're not in the dugout. You're not on the bench. You're on the court. Because the Christian command is to love God and love neighbor. Can you do that as a single person? Paul is saying, not only can you do it, you have a greater capacity to do it. I don't think that I could do what I do at UCLA, the extent to which I do it, if I was married. I really don't. Even when I was in seminary in St. Louis, I was able to volunteer at the residential home for like inner city youth and play basketball with them and tutor them and do chapels with them. I couldn't do that if I was married. Not to the extent that I did. Marriage is a good and beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Singleness is too. Singleness is too. Someone showed me this recently, but... In Paul's letter to the Ephesians in 4.11, it says that Christ gives gifts to the church. But it doesn't say he gives preaching and teaching and evangelism and prophecy. Do you know what it says? It says he gives prophets and teachers and pastors and evangelists. When Christ gives gifts, he gives people. Do you know that you are a gift to this church? Whatever state you're in, married, divorced, single, you are a gift to God's people. You are a gift from Christ. If the single people all left or got married, this church would not be what it is. And I don't mean, oh, we wouldn't have babysitters anymore. Or who would bring us our coffee on Sunday mornings? Who would give me my parking validation? That's not what I'm saying. I mean the quality of our relationships would suffer. Our spiritual life would suffer. Our church would suffer and not grow together like the way it was meant to do. Because you actually matter to this church. You matter to God's people and you matter to Christ. Which also means it matters how you live. Because I could be single and I could say, well, I don't have a wife, so I don't have kids, so I can spend my money how I want, spend my time how I want, throw myself into my career and be a workaholic, right? And many of us do that. We can't slow down because we're afraid to be honest about the loneliness and emptiness that resides at the corners of many of our hearts. You see, Jesus came not just to save us from our sins, but to save us from ourselves. To save us from ourselves. And He does that through relationships. And I don't just mean romantic ones. Paige Brown said that when someone asks you if you're in a relationship, you should say, yes, I'm in dozens. Because our range of relational options are not limited to getting married. To be single is not to be alone. Christian growth mandates relational richness. One of my friends who is 38, single, faithful to the Lord, he says he was driving home from work one day, and this thought came at him like a flaming dart that like set his body on fire almost, which was this. You're now too old to have kids. You're probably never going to have a family. And he said he had to pull over on the interstate because he just couldn't stop crying. He could not hold it in. He told no one about that. And in the next few days, out of the blue, he gets texts, emails, messages, phone calls from people saying, I just wanted you to know you're such a great mentor to me. You're such a brother to me. You're such a father figure to me. And he said he was overwhelmed by a very different emotion. Because you know what the Lord was doing in that moment? He was reminding him that the family Jesus is forming is much bigger than the immediate nuclear family our culture idolizes and elevates. 
That's the family that Jesus is forming and the New Testament is forming. Which is why Peter looks at Jesus and says, we've left all to follow you. And Jesus says, anyone who gives up mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers for my sake, they will receive a hundredfold in this world, mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers, and in the age to come, eternal life. Because this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is forming a new family. And y'all, our city needs that. Our church is not a loose confederation of single people and nuclear married families, right? That's not who we are. We are one family. We are brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers in Christ. I was reading this novel this summer that took place in Los Angeles, and this quote about our city just like jumped out at me. It said, L.A. is a city made up of 10 million desert islands, with each island containing a single exile. Our city desperately needs this. We crave intimacy and community. I'm not saying we're going to save the city. I'm not saying like this church is the last great hope. I'm saying we need to start sketching and outlining the type of church the New Testament is trying to paint. Because it's a church that is filled with singles and married people living joy-filled lives for the kingdom. One family, holy and happy in Jesus. I was even told this week about singles in our church who some said they didn't feel like they were ever going to be able to have kids, but they become court-appointed CASAs in the Invisibles campaign. They've like become foster parents. They're adopting kids. I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm saying you need to ask, what is the Lord calling me to do in the state that I'm in right now? Because there is a lot of lonely people in our city. There's a lot of hurting people in our own community. And the Lord actually wants to use you to be an agent of healing. You're first healed by the love of God, and then you go out and you heal. You are a healed healer. And God actually wants to use you as a living testimony of the hope of the gospel. As one of my pastors said, you're a sermon in shoes. So how are you living? What is the hope of the gospel? What is the hope of singleness? I like using that phrase because usually we talk about the hope of singleness is the hope is I get married, which is a good hope. It's a good hope. It may happen. It may not. It's a different kind of hope than the hope that I'm talking about. I want to talk about a hope that is happening and will happen. And there's three brief things, but the first is the goodness of Jesus. Because it's really easy in this state that we're in to think, is Jesus good to me? Whatever state we're in, married, single, divorced, is Jesus good to me? Is Jesus good to me? Paige Benton Brown wrote a piece called Singled Out for Good in her late 30s. And she was single when she wrote it. And she said, I long to be married. My younger sister got married two months ago. She now has an adoring husband, a beautiful home, a whirlpool bathtub, right? All new kitchenware, right? Is God being any less good to me than he is to her? The answer is a resounding no. Because God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God, she said, to shortchange any of his children. Is Jesus any less good to you because of the calling that you're in right now? Some of you say, like, I am married and I'm struggling in my marriage and I resent my wife and kids or I resent my husband and kids. Is Jesus good to me there too? Or I'm single and I resent being single or whatever. Is Jesus good to you? And it can be really easy in those moments on Friday afternoon to really feel it. You feel that loneliness. It begins to sink in. Is Jesus good to me? Your circumstances do not tell you if God is good to you. The only Friday afternoon that tells you what Jesus thinks about you is Good Friday. 
when he gave his life for you. And he gave his full life for your full life so that you may live it abundantly. Whether you are married or single. You are full in his sight. And he loves you. And he gave himself for you. But not just the goodness of Jesus, but the power of friendship. We undervalue friendship in our culture and in our church. Friendships, like, we talk about it like, oh, well, the real hope is I get married, but if I don't, at least I can have some friends. That's actually not how the Bible talks about friendship at all. We know marriage is a covenant relationship. I take the covenant of marriage. I think actually all relationships are covenantal. Even friendships. You know what Jesus said the greatest love is? The greatest love is laying down your life for your friends. Of course you lay down your life for your wife and your husband and your kids. The greatest love is to lay down your life for your friends. And this actually applies to everybody. Because guess what? Just because you're married doesn't mean you're not lonely. right? It's like, guess what? Spouse and kids didn't really heal everything. Right? We need friendships. Actually, your marriages need friendships because one person cannot bear the weight of your identity. Your children cannot bear the weight of your identity. We need friendships. That's why we should actually make space and time for them. If you have young kids and we can't figure time to get together, go to the McDonald's play place on Saturday and like catch up. Invite single people into your life. Go get a Christmas tree together. Right? Be creative. Invite them into your life. But the fear in L.A. is I can't do that because I'm so afraid people will leave. I'm so afraid that people will leave. So why do I make deep friendships? Because loneliness is real and affects every part of your life. And you cannot grow as a believer without that network. Without that relational vitality. But not just the power of friendship. But singleness is a testimony of the resurrection. What do I mean by that? See, the married person can trust in the resurrection. The single person must trust in the resurrection. What I mean by that is what Rodney Clapp said, which is married people, if the resurrection is not true, which it is, but like I say, it's not true, right? Then like our children can carry on our name and our memories. But a single person must mount the high wire of faith without the net of children and their memory. If singles live on, it will be because there is a resurrection. And if they will be remembered, they will be remembered by the family called church. If you're a single person faithful to Christ, you're a billboard for the sufficiency of Jesus and the beauty of heaven. Because Jesus said in heaven there won't be marriage because there will be Christ in the church. Which means singleness can't be inferior because heaven is not inferior. What that means is Jesus is calling us to give our whole life to him whatever state we are in. And I don't know sometimes what Jesus is going to do with my singleness. I don't know. But I do trust him. I'll conclude with this. There was a seminary student who would volunteer at the local nursing home. And he was there and he saw this lady who was blind, had a very disfigured face. Uh, She was immobile in a wheelchair. And she had no family. She had never been married. Her name was Mabel. And the seminary student would talk with her. And one Mother's Day, he gives her a single rose and says, for you, from Jesus. She says, thank you. You know, and as he walks out, walks away, he sees that she wheels over to another woman and gives the rose to her. And he goes back and he talks to her, you know, in the next few days. And he's just like looking at her living situations, whitewashed walls. It's very sterile and lonely. It's the place we all fear ending up. And he says, what do you do? How do you pass the time? She says, oh, I have so many things. There's so many needs here. And she starts naming off all the different people that she knows there. And she says, and I'm their friend. 
And I pray with them. And I think about Jesus. And I think about how good He has been to me. Blind, disfigured face. And she smiles. And He said it was like light was radiating from her. See, the world would look at that, and we might even be tempted to look at that and say, what an unfulfilled life. Never got married, never had kids. And yet Jesus looks at that life. In God's eyes, she is richly fulfilled. See, it takes a lot of guts to say, I'm going to give this to Jesus, and it's up to God what he does with it. But when you give yourself over to Jesus, and you really mean it, there is no knowing what he can and will do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you will bless us this morning, whether we are single, divorced, married, whatever it may be. Lord, you have brought us into a calling, and I pray that we fully embody and fully express the beauty of Jesus in our lives. We are full people now in Christ. There is no half person. There is only full. There is all one in Christ. Form us into a family, Lord, that can be on mission for your city. In Jesus' name, amen.